Well, good morning once again. Glad to glad that you are here. Uh, so, as you know and remember from the video, we're in the middle of a family series. Dwayne likes to do these once a year, <clears throat> about this time of year, and in the expected way you'd think, he breaks down the series into components of family and marriage and kids and parents and. He addresses things like divorce and relationship problems and all kind of things related to honoring God with our families. Over the last couple of years, our discussions on these topics, and there's been an overarching truth, I believe, that's developed and stronger and stronger that I believe is a very good thing. That is that all of these things, uh, all of the things that we talk about how to do, how to, in this context, how to have a good marriage, how to be good parents, how to honor your parents, and all those other topics related to family, in the text, they aren't ultimately really about the family. For the Christ follower, our family relationships, and for that matter, all of our relationships, are ultimately about Christ, about the gospel. For example, wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, for example. That really isn't just about marriage. That isn't just a text about marriage. That's about two people living the gospel with one another at the most intimate level in mutual Mutual submission. That's another topic. You can talk to me later, and I'll explain that further if you, if you would like. This section of Scripture, we know, we know this, has been mishandled and misappropriated in, in the church world to an embarrassing extent. And I'm glad to see that not just in our pulpit, uh, but in teaching in other churches and ministries that I know those kinds of things are being corrected. You see, again, all of our life, every detail, our families... Our jobs, our relationships, our activities, our hobbies, even our pursuits of, uh, of fulfillment, of pleasure, all these things should really, for the Christ follower, be about Jesus first. The fact that we are not our own. I'm not my, I'm my own man. Not if you belong to Christ, you're not. We are not our own. The fact that He, Christ, has purchased us with His own blood and He has the right to be Lord in charge calling the shots. And because of that, because of what he has done, every detail of our lives, it doesn't become more rigid and less more restrictive and more boring. No, they become all the greater sources of joy for us when we live them through the gospel lens. So Dwayne asked David and I, and kind of, I think, I think you guys did this last year or two years ago, Trenton and Brent. This year he asked David and I to share the pulpit on the day we talk about parents and kids, parents and children. Now, Obviously, I consider this a very a cool kind of deal, as I'm sure Brent did last year, and uh, for me, a great honor. It's cool because David and I are indeed friends, I think, <laughs> as well as parent and child. And I believe I can say, and if he nods behind me, good. If he shakes his head, ignore him. I believe, I believe this has happened naturally and organically, if you will. I, I knew, uh, growing up, I knew that my job was not to be his buddy. I knew that was not my job. It was my job to be his father. One of my great frustrations in talking to parents is often this overwhelming desire to be your child's friend. That's not your job. Be their parent. And if you get that right... Hold on, because the best part is the next sentence. (laughs) If, If you get that right, then the chances are and the promises say that eventually true friendship will come. Now... This is also an honor for me to share the pulpit with David because in many ways David has become and is becoming the kind of man that I wish I was. Apparently that's because I'm an awesome dad. No, no, of course, of course it's not. Did I literally just hear a no from the crowd? But of course it's not. That's because of the grace of God. I mean, I've tried to be a gospel-centered parent and more times than not, I know I have failed. 
miserably. However, I believe that God honors His own promises and His own character and His own word. And in this case, He's been able to work in David's life in spite of me. So today, David and I are going to address the first four verses of Ephesians chapter 6. Children and parents. Familiar text for many of us that have been in church for a while. And in these verses... We are dealing specifically with the parent-child relationship while the children are still young and at home, relatively young and at home, before they enter, enter responsible, hopefully responsible, adulthood. And many of us have read these verses countless times, many times, but have we really applied the gospel lens to them? As I said about the marriage text, what it's really about, have we done that with this? Uh, uh, children, why should you obey your parents? Why you're still home? Why should you do that? When you're older, uh, uh, parents, what does do not provoke mean in a larger context? How do we live the gospel in relationship to our children and to our parents? And perhaps just as important, how do we deal with when they fail or when we fail? So here's how we're going to do this. Dave and I, we're going to tag team. As it were, we're going to talk about the text Uh, What does it say? What does it mean? We're going to apply the text. What do we do with it? And then we're going to see how it points us to gospel and to Jesus. So David's going to come, read our text, and I'm going to pray, and we're going to get to work. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. All right, let's pray. God, thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you, Father, for the book. We know the whole book is about Jesus. Uh, Lord, and we're thankful for that. Lord, help us this morning as we open this text by your Spirit to help us to know what is there and how should we apply it in our lives. But most importantly, how does it point us to you and how can we live the gospel in these relationships? So help us by your Spirit. Teach us your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. David? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you. And that you may live long in the land. Obedience is not a popular concept in our culture. Uh, Young people in particular are suckered into a kind of phony individualism, the sort of false nonconformity that promotes disrespect of, and more specifically, disobedience to the parents as a behavior that embodies the spirit of what is normal within the context of our culture. Uh, Like most of the more decadent expressions of this normalcy, The lack of obedience towards the parental figure is a violation of both the law of nature and the law of God. In this particular uh, block of scripture, the Greek word from which we get obey is epakmi. This particular word is interesting because of the commanding nature of its definition. You see, epaku is an active imperative verb. It is an exhortation, a bone-jarringly direct instruction to obey. The very nature of the word ipaku entails willful obedience in the most active sense of the word. In other words, biblical obedience is something that the obeyer constantly and intentionally does, not something that is forced upon them by an authority figure. The phrase, children obey, means children are to obey. It does not mean children push the limits until your parents have to force you to obey. It should also be noted that obedience is not the same as honor. The Greek word used in this passage for honor is tamau. The word used for obey is, like the word used for obey, it is an active verb. It is an exhortation, but it is an exhortation to something entirely different than obedience. 
Tamal literally translates to set a price on. In other words, the Greek word for honor has implications about valuing something. Honor is an issue of the heart. And obedience is the sum of the inward reverence of honor, as well as its outward and active expression, which is, of course, obedience. Concepts of obedience and honor are linked. One can be obedient without honor, but one cannot really honor without a sincere expression of obedience. Obedience is the outpouring of honor. That's probably the simplest, most direct way to state that. The relationship between honor and obedience, between the act of Ipaku and the inner Tamau, is all the more impactful for the Christ follower. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. The key phrase to note here is in the Lord. You see, for the Christ follower, obedience is not only the direct result of honor, but also a reflection of their obedience to Christ. When the gospel impacts someone, it impacts every aspect of their lives. Everything that a believer does is to be filtered through the gospel. The way we approach our relationship with our parents, just as every facet of our life, must be viewed through the renewing, ever-impactful lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what obedience in the Lord means. Our obedience to our parents is done not only as the result of honor for them, but also out of love for Christ, out of love for our Savior as the result of the gospel. Our relationship with our parents are to be indicative of and influenced by our relationship with Christ. In the Lord, we are to love. And this love is to spill over into every relationship we have, including the one we have with our parents. Our obedience is the outpouring of an honor that is the direct consequence of a Christ-fueled, gospel-centric love. For this is right. This obedience is good and logical and right because it is the design of God. This obedience, inspired by an honor, stemming from an immense love, is what God designed for the child. When God's design is followed in any aspect of life, man is capable of experiencing satisfaction. Dissatisfaction, discontentment, the lack of joy is, by and large, the direct consequence of deviation from the design and plan set forth by God. On the contrary, satisfaction, contentment, and joy are all the logical consequences of adherence to God's will, to the design of the sovereign creator of the universe. Now, I think it should be duly noted that just because we imperfectly adhere to God's design as imperfect sinful beings, we will not always be happy. Because happiness is a fleeting and tangible abstract, and even joy sometimes seems hard to experience. You see, although the Christ follower has been redeemed, the Christ follower has not, in this life, been perfected. However, through Christ in the Lord... The Christ follower makes the movement towards the perfection of God on a practical level that they have in Christ on a positional level. This is what is known as sanctification, which is the process of becoming more like Christ through Christ by faith in Christ, making the movement towards him and away from sin. This sanctification makes itself known in our relationships. More specifically, in a child's relationship with his or her parents, sanctification is demonstrated in the obedience of said child to his or her parents, which shows the humility and love of Christ and serves to distance them from the sin that would otherwise destroy their relationship. 
When we follow God's will, we forfeit the pain that we would have experienced had we deviated from his will. This is reflected in the text. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. We have already discussed the importance of honor and its relationship to obedience. Honor your father and mother and let this honor pour out into obedience and be evidence of your sanctification. The portion of the text that really stands out is this, this part in the parentheses. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. In the text, Paul is quoting Exodus 20, verse 12. The promise attached to this commandment had an important practical meaning for a child living under Mosaic law. Parents had the authority to kill disrespectful children. The promise that it may go well with you had quite literally life or death implications for a child living under a Mosaic law. It was a very pragmatic and demonstrable promise. Likewise, the obedience of children to their parents today has a practical value. Parents instruct their child not to touch something hot because it will hurt and burn them. If the child obeys his or her parents, it may go well with them. If they disobey, they will experience unnecessary pain and suffering, in this case because they just put their hand on the stove and burned it. However, for the Christ follower, this promise has added significance. When the child obeys the parent, they follow the will of God. When the person who has been redeemed by the gospel follows the will of God, they make the movement towards Christ being sanctified in the process. For the Christ follower, the promise that it may go well with you has the meaning of fulfilling God's will and design. For the child who has been redeemed by the gospel, obedience and honor is the fulfillment of the will and design of God. Told you we're tag team. Uh, now be honest. Am I the only parent in the room when he made that Old Testament reference that kind of had thought, man, sometimes I wish we could bring back that Old Testament law sometimes. <laughs> no, of course not. So, so now let's look at verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul starts this verse with, with a negative, with a don't do, with a, with a no-no of sorts. And, of course, we should not have to clarify here, of course, that fathers does not exclude mothers from this piece of instruction. The, the reason why Paul uses the word fathers here in our, uh, in our te- context is, is simple and it's twofold. First, fathers, you bear the primary responsibility, the primary burden of responsibility for your family. You do. For their safety, for their provision, but most importantly, for their spiritual well-being. If you are a husband... And or a father, you are called to be a pastor. Oh, yes, you are. And those you are responsible for leading, serving, caring for, and teaching the gospel to are your family. That is your primary responsibility. Not mine, not Dwayne's, not Brent's, not your wife. Now, again, we're focusing on when things are what, as they should be, right? We know there are situations where we have to make adjustments because of what circumstance in life has handled us. But in, in the families we're addressing, f- fathers, you have that responsibility. And, and we might say, you know, but my, my wife is a better reader or the better caregiver. That may be. 
I'm not telling you specifically how to flesh that out, but it is your responsibility to make sure your family is being pointed to and told about the gospel of Jesus Christ and taught the word of God. That is your job. This time on Sunday morning should not be the primary diet your family has to subsist on spiritually. It should be the supplement to your service to them as your family's pastor. Okay? So first of all, that's why Paul uses the word father, because of your primary responsibility. Secondly, and I'm reflecting the mirror back here, the father, I think, often typically has the greater propensity to be the the harder parent, the the tough love parent, right? Sometimes we we often are the disciplinarians. Why? Especially with our sons, right? Because we want them to be men, right? We want them to be tough. We want them to be men. The problem that Paul was seeing in his culture which is, a lot of it's because of the overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly male-dominated context is with fathers being only stern, only domineering, only distant, only hard. There is a time and a place for toughness, obviously, but our toughness, men, should be tempered with gentleness and humility, as Christ's was. And in Paul's day, that was not a popular idea. And in some circles, it's not a popular idea today. We do see the same thing today. I think, I think in parenting circles, we see a lot of... Fortunately, we do see a lot of good, healthy families. I'm not saying that, there's, that we're, all, well, we're all messed up to a point. That's not my point. But I think we do see some of two extremes. We would see some uh, a fathering that we'd, we'd call too hard, too stern. And then we see the, the, the opposite, dads that are too, too soft, too hands-off, too milk-toast. What Paul is dealing with here, though, even though both apply, is primarily what we call fathering that's, that's too hard. I have often found myself under that lens. I will, I will be transparent with you there. So we see this word provoke, do not provoke. Provoke, according to uh, Biblical Language Dictionary, means to make angry, to exasperate. Now, again, let me stop here and, and be transparent for a second. I am not known in my house for my patience. Not. Some of you are thinking, you're not known at church for your patience. <laughs> I wish I was, but I'm not. I'm not. Occasionally, it comes through in moments of grace, but many times there comes a point at home when I cross that line and the switch is flicked, and, and my, my kids often don't see it coming, right? And not only does my patience run away, but it gets mad and comes back with more angry friends, right? And my first instinct, our first instinct in those moments is to blame our kids. That's our first instinct. They, put, they push me too far. They aggravated me one step too much. They whined more than that. That's what, that's what kids do, right? That's part of what kids do. I will never forget how a few years ago in this pulpit, my friend Matt Winkleman talked about this verse and this word. And he got to this word. And, and he and I had been talking about that word, that word exasperate. And he said, God, you don't, un- you don't understand how much they exasperate me. And he heard the Spirit of the Lord say to him, that's, yeah, I get that. And you exasperated me. You and your sin exasperated my, just, my justice and my holiness, and yet I sent my son to die for you. Wow. Boom. Now we'll come back in a little bit of how to deal with when that two, two-way relationship isn't perfect, but for the moment, fathers and mothers, take a moment. Just take a moment of, of heavy conviction. Take a moment and think about every time we've been short, we'll use that word, short, with your kids, 
because of them. And I'm not talking about the legitimate times that are call for discipline. Those times obviously exist. They call for even punishment, and those times do come. But those other 10,000 little times when you are less than gracious, less than Christ-like, or just mean sometimes in my own case, because they were annoying, or they were too loud, or they were bickering, or they were in your way when they were kids. And put those moments in light of the gospel and what Christ has done for you compared to how much we exasperated him. And let that just weigh for a second. We'll come back to that, but don't let go of that. Do not provoke your children to anger. The simple way to explain this when you kind of composite what a few of the commentaries say is something like this. Don't, don't irritate. <laughs> I'm done right there, right? <laughs> don't irritate. Don't discipline or punish or push your children with, a quote from one commentary, with unreasonable severity that would excite hatred. Or as one of the Puritan commentators said, I love these old words, vexatious commands, unreasonable blame, and uncertain temper. One of my favorite commentators is an old Puritan commentator by the name of Matthew Henry, and he says this about the parent. Though God has given you power, authority, you must not abuse that power, remembering that your children are, in a particular manner, pieces of yourselves, and therefore ought to be governed with great tenderness and love. Now, we have to realize that this verse, as a summary statement of this relationship, then the word provoke has to have much broader implications, and I would argue manifests itself in many different ways. It can't only be about being so hard and so stern that your children just get angry back at you. I think there's a broader implication. And I will propose to you that in our modern, our particularly American context, I want to point to three common manifestations of provoking pushing to anger to rebellion that we see in our culture. This is not, uh, this is, these are stereotypical, these, these are not all-encompassing or comprehensive by any means. They're just three that came to mind as I was writing. And one, number one, we'll call the old school. Now, if some of you guys know, I call Jim Potts old school. That's a nickname I have for him. That's not about him. This is not about Jim. The old school is what I would call the parental equivalent of machismo, macho, dad's in charge. The old children should be seen and not heard. Uh, do what I say, ignore what I do. Why? Because I say so. These are outgrowths of the old saying that a man's home is his castle. And if that's what you think, you need to get your mind right. Your home is not your castle. It is Christ's castle. It's your mission field. It's your mission field. Your home is not your castle. It's your primary area of responsibility to live out the gospel to your family. Man's home should be Christ's castle, not his own. This guy provokes his children to rebellion by just always being hard. And if I was honest, this is where I default to an error most, I would say. Would you agree with that? You weren't supposed to agree with that. <laughs> always tough, never kind, never gentle. Now, to be clear, again, gentlemen, there is a time and a place for because I said so. My children will say they hear that a lot. But if that's all you have, for your kids. That's all you have is hard? For goodness sake, learn some grace. We're going to come back to that at the end. Okay, The correction. Number two is the buddy. The buddy, and again, these are, these are over... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? These are, these are overkill illustrations just a bit. The buddy will be the guy who just... There's no discipline. There's no responsibility. They, they want to be friends. They want to have fun. They apparently... 
They have, they have such a hole in their lives that they need to fill for approval that they never, they never say no to their kids. They never discipline their kids. Or worse, they say no to their kids and then they cave when the tantrum comes. This parent provokes their children to rebellion because there are never, never, never any limits. Or worse, those limit, they set limits and then they change on a whim. The child's whim, of course. There's never any real consequences for disobedience. Another way to look at this is the buddy never gives his child any safety rails. Because in the big picture, that's what discipline, correction is for our children. Safety rails, right? When they're little, we may spank them when they've run into the street. Why? So they won't run into the street again and get hurt. I want to say, (laughs) grow a backbone is what I want to say. I guess I just said it. Your kid's most important need from you is not to be their friend. It is to be their parent. As I said earlier, if you get that right, friendship will come. So we're going to move on for now. So, so we have old school, we have the buddy, and then we have the champion maker. Again, follow me through. Stay with me. The champion maker. Push. Achieve. Excel. Perform. Be a leader. Make the team. Get the grades. Win, win, win. Go, go, go. Perform, perform, perform. Now, let me be very, very clear. You've heard me say before, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. Sports, music, talent, arts, theater, academics, those are all good things. But when they rule your entire life, when your entire world... And your entire success or failure as a parent revolves around your child's success at those things. It's going to suck the joy out of it for your child. And eventually they're going to turn around the other way, which quite possibly could include running from you. The correction to this one is a little bit more subtle. And since we're kind of, each of us have an area where immediately our mind starts to go to. Here's, here's the correction to this one. We'll go ahead and address this here. Make Christ and his bride, his family, a priority in your life and in your kids' lives. It, it really is just that simple. I didn't say easy. I said simple. I, I personally, I personally, personally, I have concern with missing total involvement in the life of a church for weeks and months on end for involvement in an activity. Any activity. I do. However, if you must, and I would argue evaluate that word very carefully, if you must be away from church on Sunday, especially for an extended period of time, which, again, you should try to avoid, then my question for you is twofold. Number one, how are you teaching your children the importance of Christ and participating in worship while you're on the road? How are you doing that? Are you holding family worship, which you should be doing anyway, by the way? And that's not as complicated as it sounds. Are you, maybe where you're at, finding a church for you to attend, showing your children that it's important to be with the family of God. How are you making that a presence and a priority in your life? Number two, how are you maintaining your family's connection with your home church? With your faith family? Are you participating at other times of the week? Could you find a way for you and your kids to be in a small group? Maybe that doesn't meet on Sunday for a while. How are you, how, how are you fighting the disconnect? And the disconnect is easy. is easy to fall into. The problem with the champion maker is that whatever specific activity we're driving at is that most of the time there's not an effort to prioritize Christ. There's just not. I said many times, not every time. Now, all three of these, and again, there's many more manifestations of provoking your children, I would say. But all three of these and the others, especially these three, I think, have something in common. And I have said 
in other messages that this sin is kind of the underlying sin of, of every other manifestation of sin, and that's idolatry. In these cases, and in most cases, I think of what, what, we'd, what we would say is provoking our children to anger, the idol just happens to be our kids. Old school demands that his kids give him respect and obedience so it's clear he's the one in charge. They demand that they give him significance. The buddy asks his kids to affirm him. To, to fill an emotional need in his life that your kids shouldn't be asked to fill. They're, they're going to fill it if you do it right, by the way. But listen, on that one, if you're looking for complete, unilateral, unwavering affirmation from your kids, you are not going to get it. Anyone with a teenager can vouch for that. Can I get an Amen. The champion maker forces upon his kids the responsibility to do one of two things. Either, either, and maybe more than just these two, these are the two that came to mind. Either provide a long lost glory that he no longer has on his own. Or to represent him well on the field. Or the stage or whatever. In all of these, the kids are given the responsibility to do for the parent, to do something for the parent that truly only Christ can and should be asked to do. Perfectly and completely, if we will let him on his terms. And that is to provide fulfillment, purpose, contentment, focus, significance, peace, even joy and pleasure. We make our kids into the things and force them to be the things that give these things to us. We insist that they give these things to us. We make them our idols. There's two things about idols real quick, though. One... When something is an idol, whatever it is, and anything can be an idol. You've heard me say before, idols most often in our life aren't bad things. They're good things that we turn into God things. And by doing that, we make them bad things. And idols cannot do what they say they can do. They cannot do it. They cannot give you what you ask them to do. Two, when you make something an idol, eventually you destroy it. You destroy it. Place that burden solely on your kids. To give you those things. To give you your significance. To give you your honor. To give you your... Place that burden on your kids and over the long haul watch them crumble. That, or watch them become the kind of people that you never wanted them to be. Because, think about this for a second. When kids are made idols, in the most clear way, they're the worst kind of kids anyway. Spoiled. Arrogant. I'm not talking about, I mean, all kids are kids. That's not what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Demanding no respect for any authority anywhere. How do we correct this? How do we avoid these manifestations of provoking our children to anger? Whether it's through our own harshness toward them directly or the more subtle, the more deceptive way of making them an idol, whatever that looks like. The good thing is that in our text, Paul gives the answer. Right after he says, don't provoke your children, he gives us the answer. Fathers, parents, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There it is. In two words, you have the summary for your entire reason that you're in your child's lives. Your entire reason for your purpose and your practice in your child's life. Discipline and instruction. Discipline and instruction. You are to teach them how to live and be, and you are to correct them when they stray. 
That's the summaries. That's the mission statement. Now, these two words, of course, on the surface, very self-explanatory. Discipline, to correct, repute, reproof, to correct, reproof, rebuke, even in the role of punishment. That, that's in there. You, you cannot avoid this as a... Let me just be blunt. You cannot avoid disciplining your children as a parent. You cannot do it. If you avoid... If you abdicate or you abstain from disciplining your children in your role as a parent, you will not succeed as a parent. You will fail. Period. You want to argue that with me? I'll come tell you why I'm right after church. Instruction. Instruction, teaching, training, preparing, encouraging, nurturing. You must teach your children. You must. And this word is huge. This is everything but from learning how to walk, learning how to speak, how to read, and learning how to act like mature men and women in the long run. The immenseness of this word, the breadth of this word, cannot be overstated. It encompasses everything. It literally does. Uh, a common response when being pressed sometimes to lead their families well is, especially in the area of the Bible, teaching the Bible, is, I don't know where to start, or I don't know the Bible well enough. Now first, let me say again, fathers, I'm just going to speak directly to the fathers in the room. There is no excuse that negates your responsibility. It's just not, man. There's just not. Secondly, you want a place to start? The book of Ephesians is a good place to start. Because it is so practical and plain. Especially chapters 4 and 5. Spend some time reading, thinking, this is what you should do. We talked about this in, in a Sunday small group this morning. Have your Bible here and a notebook here. Read and write what you don't understand. Or write questions, write comments. Then you get those questions answered and you share it with your family. It's as simple as that. Maybe. Actually, it's even simpler than that. So second, you want a place to start? Start with Ephesians. Third, ask for help. Ask us for help. Ask Brent, ask me, ask Gwen for some help. One of my favorite things to do is to help dads find resources and ways to pastor their families well. I even have an e-book called Pastor Dad from years ago, probably five or six years ago, that I'd, I'd love to send you. That talks about pastoring your family, serving and loving your family in the gospel. Discipline and instruction. Those two words, parents, we have our job. However, in those two words, many times we also see our failures. Pretty clearly looking back at ourselves. We see our task. We see our shortcomings. There is, however, a very important and deeper way to look at that first word. And we go back to the word discipline. Now, we know the immediate idea, the one that comes to mind, the one we most often think of with this word is correction. Right? That's what we think. And it's, that is right and a true and a right application. But this word means something much deeper for the believer. Discipline is the same word as disciple. A follower. A Christ follower. Immediately, I say, ah, yeah, light bulbs start to go on, right? The overarching focus of our influence toward our children in their whole lives should be to teach them to follow Christ. That should fuel and shape everything we do in the discipline area and in the instruction area. Ultimately, it's all about Jesus. It is. In everything from in the little things, like teaching them what no means when they're little, and in the big things, like having integrity, like loving others, like repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus. Your primary role is not to be their buddy or their taskmaster, not to be their dictator or their tyrant, not to be their bro, not even to be their safety net. 
Your primary role is for you to follow, follow hard after Christ and teach and show them to do the same. That's your primary role. Now with the realization that our task simplified is to follow Christ and to, I'll say it this way, and to serve our families toward doing the same, it points again to what this whole text is really about. You see, this entire book, again, the book of Ephesians, gives some very practical things. Some very helpful, practical things. It talks about how to be a good church member. It talks about how to be a good, good fellow citizen, how to live well, how to be a good husband, how to be a good wife, how to be a good parent, even how to be a good employee and employer, how to fight enemy, how to fight our enemy Satan and the temptation to sin. Lots of practical, practical things, right? That's why this book's a good place to start. The secret to them all, the secret to all of them really is we have to know, you have to realize it's not found in doing the things, The secret to being a good husband and father, for example, is not found in striving to be a good husband and father. It's it's not found in how well we perform the duties on the list. It's found in the gospel. It's found in the truth that Christ stepped out of glory for a time and served us as He glorified the Father. Philippians 2 tells us, reminds us that He, Jesus, was obedient even to the point of death on the cross. He gave Himself for us and purchased those of us who would believe in Him with His own blood. And because of what He has done, we're not our own. The gospel key in the text, that this whole section, the gospel key to this whole book is found in verse, is chapter 5, verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the gospel key. I mentioned at the beginning that that, that that comes after the section, or right before the section, about wives and husbands. And we said in the beginning that, that although that gives some very practical and helpful direction for wives and husbands, it's not really just about marriage and how to have a good one. It's about the gospel lived out between two people at the most intimate level in humanity, in a, which will result in a good marriage. Like David said, if you follow the design of God... Blessings come. Right? The key to all of our relationships, including the one between parent and child, child and parent, is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the gospel key. I'm going to hand it back to David for some application, and then we'll come back and wrap things up. David? Obviously... This relationship, this relationship between parent and child, as all relationships are, it, it is flawed because we are flawed. So a logical question is what do we as believers do when the other person in this relationship fails, the parent fails, or the child fails? First and foremost, we must be sure that we are in fact followers of Christ. Now for everyone, there are practical things that the text can uh, give you that you can apply to your life. But the ultimate blessing that comes from following God's design can only come from, well, following God's design. You can only truly, fully do that if you are His and He is working in and through the relationship. Two, remember that this relationship, and any of your relationships for that matter, are about Jesus first if you are His. Obey in the Lord. Have relationships in the Lord knowing that this ultimately means that said relationships are about the Lord. You see, the Christ follower 
For the Christ follower, our relationships are not about ourselves or the other people in them. They are ultimately about, well, Christ. Our obedience to our parents, like every relationship we have, as well as every facet of our lives, should have the ultimate end goal of glorifying Christ. Thirdly, always keep in mind that the person in this specific context, my father, is not perfect, and neither are you, and neither am I. This is the thing about being, this is where that thing about it being about Jesus starts to have a practical impact. Fourth, when your relationship with your parent or child, or the other way around, gets difficult, repent. Repent of your part, especially if you are the clear offender, if you are the person who has done the other person wrong. But also, if your part was just to allow whatever led up to the other person doing wrong to you to happen, repent of that. Repent for your part. Fifth and lastly, have grace. Grace is to be extended to those who wrong us. Now, sometimes that's easier said than done, of course, but we should fight for grace in ourselves nonetheless. There are always three parts to every relationship. Your part, the other person's part, and God's part. We hope that your family relationships are strong and healthy. Not perfect, because that doesn't exist. So when you are looking at your relationship with your father like I am, know that all you can really do, whether that relationship is good or in really bad shape, is your own part. Pray, repent, be gracious, be patient. You do your part, trusting God to do his part, and hoping that they will do their part. Now, Dad said I could be honest and saying that he has not always done his part. I've seen that. He knows that. We've talked about our mutual shortcomings time and time again. However, he has also tried and I think has succeeded in demonstrating repentance. Although he's not done it perfectly or even consistently, he's pointed me toward grace. So... Some really great points of application there. And here's how we're going to close. In just a few minutes, the band's going to come. Like at every time at the end of our service here, we have a time of response, a time of invitation. The first point of application that you heard him say was make sure you're a Christian. Um, that's one way, whenever, wherever I'm at, whenever I'm preaching, whenever I'm speaking of the text, when we get to applying, that's always number one. It's always number one because the promises in this book, just like Ephesians, there's a lot of great practical things in here that could help anybody. But you will not truly experience the fullness of those things unless you're doing them in the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit because you're His. So first, make sure you're a Christian. Here's how you do that. Holy God and unholy man are separated because God can't be with unholiness. Perfection can't touch imperfection or it's no longer perfect. There's an irreparable void between us that there's no way we could, there's no way we could bridge There's no way I can make myself clean enough so that I get to be with God in a relationship. It can't happen. I cannot do that. I cannot do that. Nobody can do that. That's why Christ came. That's why Jesus came and died a sacrificial death, atoning covering for the sins of everyone who would believe. And He made the way, the only way, for rather than have to face God one day in wrath and in judgment, because that's one of God's jobs is judge. Rather than have to stand before him in wrath and judgment, in Christ I can stand with him in love and in mercy and in relationship. Here's how that happens. You have one part. And you can't even do this part unless God enables you to do this part. And that's to respond. The way you respond is this. You repent of sin because you can't clean yourself. You can't behave enough. You can't be good enough. 
No matter how clean we think we are, there's always sin in the life. Romans 3.23 tells us that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I repent of sin and self, and I trust in Jesus and what He did at the cross. The death He died in my place. Repent of sin, trust in Jesus. Repent of sin, trust in Jesus. That's how you do that. And when you do that, when you begin to do that, then Christ makes you His own. And then you can know the fullness of everything we're talking about. Of course, you know, hopefully we, you know, that th- there's also eternity in the balance. That you don't have to face hell either. But there's so much more than that. There's so much more than just eternity. There's the blessings of His Word. So, the first call is perhaps that's you this morning. And you realize, you know, I've, I've never bought into Jesus. I've never committed. I've never really repented and trusted Jesus. I've tried to be good. I've tried to come to church. I've tried to fix things. It's never worked. The reason it's w- never worked is you can't do it. You need to repent of sin and trust in Jesus. Number two, maybe you're here this morning and this, this kind of conversation opens up a lot of emotions. It opens up sometimes a lot of wounds. Maybe you just need to come and pray. Maybe you realize even though you're a Christian... Your family's not where it should be, and you need to come and pray. The altar is open as soon as we start. As soon as I say amen in a moment, the altar is going to be open for you to come and pray. Maybe. Understand, when, when things are not right and repentance is offered, it doesn't fix everything like that, but it's a starting point. Maybe today you need to make a note. After church, you need to make a phone call. You need to write a letter. You need to go see somebody. And you need to say, you know what? I have not done this well. I've said that to him and to Victoria and to her many times. I've not done this well. And you start there. There might be other reasons. Perhaps you've decided this is the day you want to join the church. Maybe you've made a decision and you want to make that public. For all of those reasons, the altar is open and well as well. God, thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the gospel of Jesus Christ that you came to rescue us. And not just from bad relationships, not just from our messed up lives. You came to rescue us from sin and death and hell and eternity apart from you. But when we respond to you in repenting in sin and trusting in Jesus, Lord, I thank you that there's so much more that comes with it. It doesn't mean our lives will be perfect. But it sure does put us in the right place to begin to correct those things. So we thank you for that. Lord, as we, as we say amen, as we sing, as we worship you, as we sing about what you have done for us, you know what you have purposed to do in every heart here. There's no one here by accident. Everyone that's here, including David and myself, are here because you have something you want to do in our hearts and lives today. I pray, God, as you have already purposed, that you would bring those things to pass. You would bring those things to fruition. So we give this response time to you, Lord, for you to do with as you see fit, because you alone are God. You alone are good. You alone are worthy and able. In Jesus' name, for our good and your glory, all God's people say, Amen.